My guest today on Geek 4 is Bonnie Stahoviak. Bonnie is the Dean of Teaching and Learning and a Professor of Business and Management at Vanguard University of Southern California. She's the creator and host of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, which she's done nonstop for over 10 years. There, she provides a space for discussing the art and science of facilitating learning, and she explores ways to improve productivity so that teachers can be more present for their students and have more peace in their own lives. It's a great podcast. I'm a big fan. Bonnie has a Doctor of Education in Organizational Leadership from Pepperdine University, and she has a Master's of Arts in Organizational Leadership from Chapman University. She's conducted workshops, presented keynotes at various academic conferences on how to be a more effective teacher. She also has this passion for educational technology and technology in general, and how it can be used to better facilitate teaching, but also improve people's lives. She's married to Dave, who is the host of the Coaching for Leaders podcast, and they have two young children, both work full-time jobs, and are both computer geeks, and are living as joyfully as ever together. I started listening to Bonnie's podcast about six or seven years ago. It's one that I uh, I encouraged young faculty when I would hire new professors to listen to, to get a sense of how to improve their teaching, how to go about thinking methodically about improving teaching. And it was a great thrill. Uh, I've been on Bonnie's podcast. I still can't believe she had me on. And it was wonderful to sit down and talk with her about technology and about how much of a fan of technology she is. I hope you enjoy. This is Geek 4, a podcast about fans, fandom, and fan culture. I'm Dr. Michael Boyce. Everyone likes something, but what are you a geek for? Bonnie Stahoviak, welcome to Geek 4. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Now, you have been doing the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast since 2014. And one of the things that I've absolutely loved about it is you have this infectious love of the technology that you talk about. I mean, you talk about other things too, but when you get to the technology, you really kind of get excited about it. I was wondering, uh, thinking about practical applications of technology, where does your background with technology come from? Were you always like a techie? Oh, absolutely not. Although (laughs) so many of us that that went through such a drastic technological age that remember a time when there wasn't email, remember a time when our email was just a series of numbers, (laughs) remember what a time was like where the internet didn't exist or when it did exist, it was not in a graphical user interface like we remember. So I remember those market times, but I think most people probably have memories like that because they have had such an impact on our life. But the biggest thing probably that, that started my interest in technology And it felt like at the time I needed to learn it to survive was the first job I had out of college was at a computer training company. Oh, yes. So how did young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed Bonnie approach uh, learning about technology for this job? I was very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. It's very astute of you to (laughs) suspect that that was the case. So I was 22 years old, and my job was to teach eight-hour computer classes in front of groups of usually about 24 people. And in your your typical classroom fashion with a giant monitor on, on the table so you could barely see the people unless you really got used to moving around. And on occasion, actually more than on occasion, we would be expected to learn a piece of software and teach it the next day for eight hours. So it was quite the 
stressful job, but I didn't know it was stressful at the time. I didn't know any better. This felt normal to me at the time. And I used to buy a ton of gigantic third-party books. It would be like a four or five inch book that if you hit someone with it, not that I ever did, but you would really hurt them with the book. And I would literally just read, I read voraciously computer books that were written by third parties. And that's how I learned. Fittingly, like you, you go on into academia, you become a professor, uh, not teaching, I'm assuming not teaching eight hour classes on computer software. No. Um, but <laughs> how, how has that approach to technology and learning the technology that you use for that job? How did that transfer over into the academy? Because in my experience, and I mean, I was a, a VP academic, I supervise faculty. There are lots of faculty who kind of like go on the technological train and then they just get off and they're just going to use their PowerPoint and that's all they're interested in doing. But I mean, you've really kind of embraced the new possibilities with technology in the classroom. Yeah, what I would say is that what changed the most, and it, and it started to happen prior to teaching in a higher education context, was my thoughts about teaching changed probably before my thoughts about technology changed. And I would argue that what I was doing at the time was what a guy named David Merrill out of Utah State University, I believe he's faculty emeritus by now. I always get those confused, emeritus, emeriti, emeritus. Mm -hmm. Terrainus, I don't one of one of those those conjugated wow. verbs. <laughs> it's interesting. My my history with Latin comes back to me. Emeritus would be the male. Uh, emerita oh, okay. would be the female. Yeah, not a lot of history of Latin over here. So thank you for that. Yeah, I had to take Latin. Sorry, <laughs> he was that. Never get to use it again. <laughs> and he would we would argue more of what I was doing was demonstrating. Mm -hmm. So by instructing people. I was relatively good at keeping people together, which if you're really actually teaching, you're probably not keeping people all together in lockstep. So I was demonstrating a piece of software for eight hours a day and his instructional design methodology, and he was early in the days of e-learning would be more problem-based. And of course mm. the world of teaching has changed so much and the world of technology, but I would see that what I still think and I'm fascinated about today is that we tend to think that what's limiting us, just pick a topic, whether it's technology or it's something else, we tend to think that what's limiting us is a lack of information, knowledge, or skills. Mm -hmm. And I see so many times where what limits me and what limits other people is actually a lack of imagination. And I can go back to very early in teaching Microsoft Excel. At the time, I, I think it's actually quite a bit larger than this, but at the time, you could type into 4.2 million cells before you would run out of individual boxes to put data in. And I taught at all different kinds of places, including JPL, which I did not know at my 22-year-old self stood for Jet Proportion <laughs> Fortune Lab laboratory. And that, that actually had to do with NASA. And when I saw the sign as we're passing it by in the freeway, I was carpooling with a guy from work. I'm going, hold on a second. I'm not qualified to teach at NASA. What's happening? But anyway, so he asks me, what, what if we need more than 4.2 million cells? And I just, the world, I couldn't, why would you need more than 4.2 million cells to do anything? By the way, the answer back then and still today would be, you need another tool besides Microsoft Excel if your data points exceed 
whatever today's count is when you go across all over the worksheets and all of the data. But yeah, I mean, so much of the time we think it's we're kind of self-deprecating and I think we should still, you know, occasionally be self-deprecating, but to try to stretch our imagination as opposed to thinking that we're in a fixed mindset, never going to be good at this or, or that kind of stuff, which is really damaging to us in life. And again, not just with technology. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, my final years of supervising faculty um, during the pandemic was when I actually saw people more willing to embrace imagination um, because they were suddenly forced into it in a way that they never had been before. And so it wasn't just technology, but that was kind of, you know, the, the, the tools they had to use in order to do the job they, they, they had. And very quickly people, uh, once they realized that technology shouldn't just be trying to replicate what they did in the classroom that you, you know, you, you're actually looking for, you know, what, what were you trying to achieve with this technique? There's a way you can achieve it. It looks differently, but in this other, in this other thing, it was really exciting for me to the, the some of the, the people who I thought would just be hands off and terrified actually embraced it. And I, I hope are still doing it because it was really exciting to watch them uh, experiment. You're reminding me of one other story I'd like to share that really was fundamental in changing. It was it was a beginning and emerging for me of changing my perspective. So I, I was an instructor for a, a year, and then I got promoted to be able to hire, train, and lead other instructors. And a rookie mistake at the time would be you would stand at the front of this room with 24 people you couldn't really see. And you especially couldn't see their monitors because their monitors would only be visible from the back of the room. So you'd stand at the front of the room and you would say, are y'all with me? And of course they would say yes. And I would often sit in the back of the room in my class observations. And I can most assuredly tell you they were not all with the person. And of course, there's a number of reasons why that might happen. We there's psychological experiment after psychological experiment where we don't like to admit when we are failing, or we are wrong, we can be very influenced by people around us. So that's part of it is the shame of Oh, my gosh, everyone else seems to have this life thing, or this computing thing altogether. And I must mm -hmm. be the only one who doesn't have this all figured out. It could actually be that the person doesn't realize that they're not with you. And unless we face some challenges in our learning and some ask someone asking us to apply what we're learning in different contexts. And David Merrill, that same guy, he taught me so much. It, it isn't just telling people, here's what it looks like when you're doing it right. But we also as learners need to know what it looks like when we're not doing it right. And unless we experience those kinds of challenges and all different kinds of learning that we might do, we actually are being hindered from ever truly becoming quite adept at navigating the complexity that is in almost anything I can imagine us learning today. So those are those are really the two things was the rookie mistake of, you know, standing at the front of a room with 24 people saying, are y'all with me? versus what you can see if you're in the back of that room and you actually get that glimpse. And that reminds me of when we all went to be online. Mm -hmm. 
because so many people, you ask the question to your faculty, what were you trying to achieve with that teaching technique? And a lot of times, whether people were conscious of it or not, what we might have been trying to achieve was engaging people at least enough to get them to participate in what is often called civil attention. So I noticed, by the way, teaching in a corporate environment before coming to higher education, a lot of business people will be a lot more likely to give you civil attention and maybe even civil affirmation. They might laugh at your corny jokes. They may make more eye contact with you and smile more and nod their heads. And then you come in and go, wow, I've either completely lost it or this audience is quite different than the one that I'm accustomed to. So, but if all we're attempting to get is civil attention, and by the way, we could be quite entertaining. Mm-hmm. They could, our jokes really could be funny to a college age, whatever college group you're teaching, whether it's people in their 60s or people in their 20s, that you could actually be achieving that kind of entertainment, engagement, which is really good. I mean, grabbing people's attention, that's not something to be scoffed at. Anytime we can do that is great. Mm. But gaining someone else's attention, first of all, we know that can be fleeting. So we may just have people behaving as if, but we're not really able to get inside their heads and catch glimpses of what they might be experiencing. So when we moved online, the whole thing was so many debates, oh, the many debates about, should we force someone to turn their cameras cameras on? on. Yeah. And I will say that something I didn't, I mean, forcing people is an interesting way of looking at life, but I did encourage it a lot more when I taught online in doctoral programs and that Mm -hmm. kind of a thing. And, and I, I more so now I try to find other ways to catch those little glimpses inside of other people's minds, whether it's something as simple as Google has something called a jam board, which is both a piece of hardware, but you can set the hardware aside because you could use it on any web browser with any group of people to have access to a web browser and invite people to post sticky notes mm. on a virtual space and get a sense of what is it. And so I used to teach, I used to incorporate in a business ethics class, for example, I'd give everybody a physical sticky note and ask them to come prepared with a business ethics in the news story that they mm. would write on their their physical sticky note and then hang on the back of the wall. Well, that was an easy thing to go. Well, I'm used to getting little glimpses of what's going on in their mind. I'm trying to encourage them to capture the thoughts that they have outside of this physical classroom space and bring it together so we can talk about it in community. Well, that was a fairly easy activity then to transfer over and say, well, now we're going to use virtual sticky notes. But so many of the other things, if we're so accustomed to the heads nodding and the eyes are open and people are laughing at our jokes as a means of an indicator that people are learning, there's going to be a lot of unlearning that has to happen first before we're ever going to actually be able to translate what we might have been achieving or thinking we were achieving in a classroom. I think it's going to be very interesting. I mean, it's happening already, but as uh, more schools are opening up, I, I I don't know if your school is face-to-face or a hybrid. Okay. Um, some schools are still kind of trying the hybrid thing. People can come if they want to, if they're comfortable. It seems to me, it seemed to me uh, back when this was my responsibility, that students who had been used to being online 
suddenly had to be re-educated on what it meant to be in person because suddenly, you know, talking, if you're, you know, your mic's off uh, in a classroom is in a, is, is a distraction in a way that it wasn't online. Um, you know, so just those kinds of re-education pieces. And I think that oftentimes professors forget that like, yes, they're content experts, but there's also this, how they engage the students and build that community, which is so important. And I just think like over the pandemic, especially technology has been a facilitator of community in a way that it never has been. Um, I like, you know, the reason you and I know each other is because of Twitter. Um, you know, um, I spent Christmas Day, a, a horrible snowstorm here in Southern Ontario that kept me separated from my family. I spent Christmas Day watching movies with people from all over the world in a film community run by a friend of mine um, in the UK. Like, it brings us together in a, in a way, it's a tool to make things happen. And I think community is actually one of those really important ones. Yeah, you mentioned Twitter, and there's a lot happening up there and also not happening up there. And Every day I check, is Twitter still thing, a thing? <laughs> and it's changed. I'm finding myself, I've been dabbling in some of the other alternatives, which are not exact replicas, but th that's kind of the point, isn't it? But yeah. but it's kind of one of those, I miss my, I miss the sense of normalcy of being able to have a very easy process of feeling like I could connect with people who shared similar values and were conversing about things that were really important to me. I also recognize the privilege that I have when I say things like that, because Twitter long before the changes in leadership had certainly problems and, and lots of things that are important for us to be discussing in terms of ethics and use of technology. But yes, in this particular moment, as I was recording, not sure what that's all going to be looking like. I, I know that you pre-record episodes, as do I often, and I keep listening to myself make a casual mention of Twitter in an episode that maybe I recorded three or four weeks when I go, dang it, that's just not, it's just not, not ever going. I have had several people like when I ask, you know, is there how can people find you on social media? I go Twitter. If it's still a thing when this comes out, um, that's that's been their response. So you know, I've I added my first Mastodon link uh, the other day for for a guest. Uh, I, I hadn't done that yet. Yeah, for me, it's like I I have enjoyed Twitter, and like you, I've been very privileged. I have not experienced the kind of vitriol that some people have, and I, friends of mine have experienced it. So it's it's not. Um, it, it's not that far removed from me. It's people in the film community you just make an unpopular um, proclamation and people come after you in a way that is just toxic and awful. For me, it's the the rebuilding all the relationships and and you know finding everybody. And now as people splinter off into their different into their different uh, media, uh, how, how, how do you build a community again after, after so long, but you know, imagination can play a good part and we'll, mm -hmm. we'll see. We'll see. Do you have any hilarious failure stories from using technology in a, an educational context? I, so funny. Cause when I think about humor, it's like, I'm funny when I don't want to be funny. <laughs> so I am funny when I think that something I'm saying is gonna is that's that that's the hysterical thing is I mean everything from the you know famous typos I, I mean I think actually the most funny failure story I have came long before the pandemic and that is when I had a chance to interview someone I considered to be quite a hero in higher education Ken Bain who wrote a famous book about what the best college teachers do 
was reporting a longitudinal study about, as you might imagine, really good college <laughs> teachers and, and what it is that they do across all lots of different contexts. And I was very nervous to speak with him. And he wasn't nervous, I don't think, but he certainly wasn't as familiar with the podcasting world as I was. So when I stopped recording, he said, oh, I really wish I could have said some things. And I said, well, that's the beauty of how podcasting works. I could just press record and capture that and slice it in. Nobody would know. But he started saying all these names and things I wasn't familiar with. So he said the name Eric Mazur. And then he talked about something called the Minerva Prize. A half a million dollars was awarded to Eric Mazur. And and I, I'm typing feverishly and thinking like, you are saying many things I don't know, but that's the beauty of it. I can press record and ask you some questions. So I started out by asking him to tell me about the manure award because autocorrect had changed Eric Mazur oh, no. to manure, but I couldn't type fast enough. So I thought that was associated with the manure prize. And he let that sweet man, let me get through it three times before he gently told me that actually it was the Bless Minerva prize. <laughs> Just the sweetest of all things. And so, yeah, um, I could have edited that, edited that out, but instead I went with it because that is what people enjoy listening to is people being human and authentic. And how could, I mean, I still today, after all this time, do tend to get a little nervous giddiness kind of when I have a chance to talk to people. Same thing with teaching. I've been teaching in higher education almost 20 years now, and it's still that same nerves. I'm about to start teaching a new semester and it's kind of some of the students I know, cause I've had them in previous mm. classes. Some of them are brand new and trying what is this experience going to be like? And so that nervous giddiness isn't always bad, but nonetheless, I ended up celebrating that failure and had on my episode 100, which now I'm all the way up to Yikes. 440 something as of this week, but, but I celebrated it by inviting people to share their horrendous failure stories. And then we gave out a manure <laughs> award. I love it. I love it. I, I, I always believed in the classroom and, you know, I will return to the classroom at some point. I love teaching. I'm a very good teacher. It will be something I do again. I was just burnt out. Um, that showing students that we are human and that things don't always go right uh, appropriately is a very good way to get them to see something different, that you're not just a content expert, that things can go wrong and you can make you can make adjustments and fix things. And I, I yeah, I commend you because most people, most people's egos would have re required them to cut that out. When I first interviewed someone, she's Anisa Ramirez and she has a PhD in materials science. And before I'm interviewing her, I'm having to Google what on earth is material science. And so that was kind of one of the low points where I think, cause I was embarrassed. I thought, oh gosh, you know, what if someone finds out, well, how on earth could you expect anyone, any human being to know in different people's disciplines? I, you know, I've not taken a class in chemistry ever, not even in high school. Why, why would you expect that? And when, I guess when we can relax a little bit and experience things with a childlike mind. It's so, such a more enjoyable way and, and to be curious about the world and to go, my gosh, I don't know that, but there's so much more to learn. And how exciting is it 
that I get an opportunity to talk to people who are interested in such different things than I am. And it's, it's really fun. I was going to mention, you talk about failing at the end of this business ethics class. I have students, they can choose sort of what their final project will be. It might be more of a post session this semester. They're going to have an opportunity to participate Hmm. in a competition around taking the UN's sustainable development goals and then applying it to some sort of a business case and, and tying it in some way, or they can make a board game or some kind, of a, some kind of a game. And so years ago, prior to COVID, I can distinctly remember that we were playing the final classes, playing all the games that everybody made. And so we're playing this game and they did, they needed it to be even teams for some reason. So would I be on the team? Of, oh, sure. Of course I will. And our team lost in a heated match with another team. And they thought that I did it on purpose, which cracks me up because it goes all the way back to when I used to be a YMCA camp counselor. And the kids thought I was playing sports that bad on purpose. Oh, no, that's a natural gift. It, it just comes naturally to me. I don't have to work to be that bad and get your soccer team or your bowling team, or I guess bowling's done individually, but nonetheless. So the, the word that I was supposed to say was a rather famous philosopher, Bentham, Jeremy Bentham. I had probably said Bentham a thousand times throughout the semester. And just for whatever it was on whatever day it was, or the life in me could not conjure up this person's name. And they're going, I mean, there is so funny. They're just yelling, come on. And I, I, mean, I couldn't, you know, the more the pressure that gets put on, I couldn't do it. And they would see me years later and go, remember that time? You couldn't remember that? And, and they literally told me it was the first time they ever realized that there are things that professors don't know and how important of a lesson that was. So I get reminded of that. You remember that? Yeah. Oh, yes, I remember it well. Yes, yes, I do. It was both funny, but also a, a point for them to go, oh, these people I hold in such high esteem, perhaps mm. they're humans too, flawed in all of their humanness, including their cognitive abilities. And, you know, if I can pass that lesson along, sure. <laughs> You're going to learn I mean, it eventually, kid. Sorry. To, I always made a point of telling them when I changed my mind on something, like I used to think this about something. And now I've, you know, that, that changing your mind is not a failure. It's actually, it's, it's a progress um, that you've learned something new, new information's come to you. Uh, you know, same, same thing with the failures. I very happy to share my failures with people because there's plenty, plenty. What new tech, what new tech has you excited? Is there anything that you're just itching to try either in your, your own life or in the classroom? So I have a friend who you actually met because you were on one of my podcasts with him, Rob Park, and he teaches computer science at University of Southern California. And he is really into not staying behind the wall mm -hmm. of a learning management system to the extent that it affords him things, he'll use them, but he really likes, in his case, he uses GitHub as all of his course materials there are openly available. You could actually take his entire course on, uh, I forgot the <laughs> name of it. Sorry, Rob. So like how to, how to make things out of raspberry pies and, okay. and things like that. It's programming, a programming course. And you could go through the entire thing, watch the videos, read all the instructions for the assignments. All of that is in one repository. Now I will admit 
that I have been rather fascinated specifically with using GitHub. But when I tried to, I mean, I have a GitHub account. There's a GitHub for educators. I'm like, I got, I dipped my toe in and decided, you know, that's a better summertime yeah. thing. But I still love the idea. And I actually have, I, I, so I guess what I wanted to start out by saying is I think rather than starting something entirely new, what gets me excited is extending mm. what I already know. And I'm very, I love, love, love the idea of linking to things instead of uploading things. So linking to notes about an assignment or about your class content far better than uploading a PDF, because what about then when you change your mind about something or you change your approach? And I've been doing this for a long time, actually for I don't know, more than seven years or something. I don't upload mm. a syllabus ever. What I upload is a link to a PDF of my syllabus and my Word documents, because that's where I start. They are always date oriented. So you could see as far back as I've been teaching every single Word document for any syllabi I've ever taught off of. But that PDF constantly changing and in the file name never has any date references. So across, I mean, I'm getting ready to teach less, less than a week before we kick off here. And I never have to go upload my PDF of my course schedule, my syllabus, anything like that. All I have to do is replace the file. So I'm in Word, I'm making all the changes and then just file, save as PDF, do you want to override it? Cause I have to take off the date oriented part of the file name. Yes. I want to override it. And then I never have to do that again. So that same idea I'm drawing from Rob Parks, GitHub repository for all of his course materials. And then of course I'm drawing from my own skills of becoming accustomed to that. And I mentioned that in my class, I'm going to be having them participate if they optionally, if they want to in this business ethics competition, I don't have it all figured out yet. The colleague who's actually going to be the mentor, I'm speaking to him tomorrow. I'm not going to have time. I have placeholders. I have placeholders. So as we talk, I'll be able to update those notes. And I've got the same thing kind of going on with taking attendance. Everything is going to be in this offline, no, sorry, it's an online repository, but it's not inside the learning management system. So I just really enjoy the freedom of that when you can't get it done. Can you create a placeholder for it? So that anytime you type into that and the app that I'm experimenting with right now is called uh, craft <laughs> it's craft.do is the URL has kind of an unusual URL. And it's one of the many note-taking tools out there. There's lots of them. And I appreciate this one because there are all kinds of easy to organize. You can have tags, you can have folders, you can easily copy and paste. It'll embed video real nice. I mean, it's just really nice. And by the way, surprise the heck out of me has some type of artificial intelligence for writing, which we could go on a whole <laughs> tangent yep. when it comes to this, but almost fell over when I was working with our provost to get some announcements coming out, including something about a 2024 accreditors visit. And instead of getting help on how to change the heading, I got help with three paragraphs I did not write that were as if I had written them. And all I would need to do is put in a little bit of details about the visit is pretty wild. So we're constantly having our ethics and our values 
being wrestled with. And then we're constantly thinking something's new. And then I'm reminded that there is nothing new under the sun. And this is similar to the ways people have felt about tests and Mm -hmm. potential cheating on tests and similar to the ways people have felt about plagiarism and potentially plagiarizing. And once again, it's a challenge for all of us, I think, to rather than decide that our profession is to surveil and catch other people doing something wrong. Maybe that's your thing. If that's your thing, you might do better in a different profession where it's more geared toward that to find reporting. Like espionage. (laughs) In the FBI. I don't know, but, but uh, it's hard because yes, sometimes people will decide to do what we have decided is unethical. And then we have to really ask ourselves, well, what is it that made us decide that that is and by the way, I, it's not like I'm a complete relativism, you know, but that I do believe there are things that are more ethical and less ethical, but I don't want to center my profession and my teaching around using technology to catch people doing things. Yeah. That, that one always made me uncomfortable, uh, when, you know, it came to like surveillance programs for online tests, especially that came up a bunch during pandemic, people were really really concerned that students were cheating and and my response was always like okay we like we can we could do that there's some privacy issues we'll need to work out with the lawyers and all that and you know there might be a way to construct a test that makes cheating more difficult or, or makes cheating unattractive an unattractive option i had a friend who was teaching her first class and caught her first plagiarism uh and i just i i wisely you know patted her on the shoulder probably a little condescendingly and said like, you know, get used to it. Like this is going to happen. Um, and it's going to get, it's going to get more complicated as, as time goes on, unfortunately. But no, I think technology at its best is a tool to help us, um, share and them learn, uh, and, and we can learn as well. Yeah. The thing that I love right now is because a lot of this leads back to something that's formally called authentic assessment. Well, if you are training to one day be a physician, do you ever use technology? I hope so. When you, you know, look if there's any, you know, what's it called when you prescribe something and it conflicts with something else? Like, like, I don't, I don't think you're carrying that database around in your head and are you, you know, technology to help you in areas, you know, to try to get at the problem. But yeah, there are, there's stuff we still need to know. Mm-hmm. There's stuff that we still need to have memorized and have available to us and to store inside of our long-term memory to be able to analyze things and think, think deeply about the world and, and learn deeply in whatever our profession is. But there are many ways to help people retain things in their memory. And the way that most of us do testing, formal, traditional testing, isn't it? Yeah. Taking a midterm and taking a final, what you do contribute to is the short term, both cramming as well as, you know, the studies that will show, yeah, I might do better on that test. But you ask me a week later, if I spaced out the practice by spaced out, I mean, you know, it was happened multiple times across multiple days and weeks, Hmm. I'm going to have far greater longer term retention that I mean, that just shows up over and over again in the research. So I am not saying we should never be preparing people for standardized tests, because there are many professions that still have that as part of it. I'm saying the path to get there 
doesn't look like two high stakes exams over a 16 week period and we have successfully accomplished our goal. I would also argue that we can have fun along the way doing what is known as retrieval practice. So I love, there's a flashcard app called Quizlet. Mm. You make a flashcard deck inside of Quizlet. You can play a game with a group of people called Quizlet Live. And it's like a trivia quiz type of a thing, but it makes you talk to the people who are on your team because only one of you has the right answer. So it's more of a collaborative collectivist kind of an approach to retrieval practice flashcards, whether it's the old fashioned kind or whether we're using computing for that has a lot of evidence to demonstrate that that longer term retention of information and knowledge is going to be facilitated by things like flashcards and Quizlet live is a hoot. I have never played that game and not had people laughing, yelling with the, as they're, they're earning points as a team. And if they get one wrong, they go all the way back. And you can tell when that happens because there are a lot of cries of agony as people go back to the beginning. Yeah. But did you remember the name Jeremy Bentham? Oh, Yes. <laughs> that's imprinted in your brain. I've had people text me like, they'll say, oh my gosh, I just interviewed for a marketing job and I could recite off something in marketing called the four P's that has been around forever. I could recite it right there and talk about it. And it's all because of you. I mean, it's really fun to have someone years later. Not only did they remember that at a critical point for them, but they remember who it was that facilitated that happening is a really rewarding thing. And notice I didn't like, I didn't do that. I just gave an opportunity for her to do that for herself. It's Mm. really that uh, there's so many rewarding things to being a professor. There's so many rewarding things to being a teacher, seeing people get excited about a subject that they didn't know they would get excited about. That's absolutely one of them, but there is a very particular joy that I get, and I think other other professors get get this as well. When somebody comes back years later and says, "I remember that um, this uh, b- before I left uh, my job, I got a card from a from a student, and I didn't recognize the city. It's like a northern city in Manitoba. Like very few people live there. I'm like, I don't know anybody there. And I I open the card, and I don't recognize the name. And it takes me a little bit of time to kind of trace who this person was. And it was a student who took one class with me. It was a large introductory class to literature. And he's like, you probably don't remember me at all, but I I learned some stuff and I've, I've been reading a lot during the pandemic and reading historical fiction. I remember this thing that you taught us that's in this novel. And I was like, I need to write this guy a letter. And I was like, that's the most sweet thing. Um, it's, it's pretty, pretty remarkable when people come back years later and, and, and remember something significant that you might not have even thought was significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Best Christmas gift ever. Yeah. Honestly was this year. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Uh, do you have some, do you have some time for some fast forward, some quick back and forth? I, I prepared only one question. So hopefully it's one of <laughs> one of your fast fours that you asked. Cause I got one. I had to ask the kids and my husband. Okay. All right. Well, I, if I don't get it, we can edit it in. That's the beauty of this. <laughs> what is one bit of technology you cannot live without? My my iPhone. What is the first thing young Bonnie was into? Sean Cassidy. Oh. I do run, run, run. The very particular, very particular love there. Is there something that you're a huge fan of that might surprise people? 
Hmm. I'm not that surprising of a person. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, 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 maybe it's not that surprising, but I do tend to binge on uh, sh- television shows about wealthy people doing bad things. Oh, More recently the white Lotus. Oh, come on people. Well, I mean, you were, you were the one you approached me to be on your podcast to talk about severance. And yeah. I had, I I'd heard about it. I hadn't seen it. I wasn't yeah. watching a lot of TV at the time and it was brilliant. I loved that show. That was so good. I'm so glad you introduced me to yes. it. I feel like I'm not going to get to your question. So we're going to have to add it. So after hosting teaching and higher ed podcast since 2014, having released weekly episodes that whole time, what is the most important thing you've learned? Fail, fail often, give other people opportunities to fail and fail often. That's good. What was your question? What is the geekiest gadget I own? Okay, I'll add that. Bonnie, what is the geekiest gadget you own? I had to ask my husband and children about this, and they came up with the perfect answer. Not only do I sleep with a mouth guard, but I have technology called a dental pod that through sonar technology rays from the sun and the moon, um, clean it every night. It's called a dental pod. That is the geekiest piece of technology I own. That sounds like a superhero origin story. Like <laughs> this is going to give you superpowers. And... It looks like a tiny spaceship. It's a tiny like BB-8, but not quite shaped quite the same way, but it's adorable. Very clean lines. Okay. It's literally so satisfying to clean it just because like I want, there, there cannot be any water spots on this thing. It is a beautiful gadget and I love it so much. And I have re- a remarkably clean mouth guard. As somebody who also has a mouth guard, uh, I'm going to look into this. This is very, this is very interesting. Bonnie, where can people find you on, on social media and how can they support you? The best way to find me would be to go to teachinginhighered.com because social media, I am changing, but I am on all social media at B-O-N-N-I-208. That's a story for another day, but uh, you can find me on Twitter at B-O-N-N-I-208. I do. I have been experimenting with the Mastodon. We're geeky enough to have our own private host that we are using, but I can provide you with that link if you're interested. I'm sure. out posts. I'm very lonely up there on post, but I'm trying it out. Who knows where I am these days, but. All right. In the higher best place homepage to find me. Okay. And I highly recommend uh, the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. Uh, I'm a longtime listener and uh, a huge fan of it and of you. So thank you. And I'll link to all of that in the show notes. So if people want to go there, they can just click and and move on because technology is great. I wanted to say one thing about the podcast because we talked a little bit about artificial intelligence, but I Mm -hmm. have already planned three podcasts that are going to come out in the first quarter of 2023 about artificial intelligence in learning spaces. And I just started reading a book by Brian Christensen called the alignment problem. So I can't rec. I don't, I don't tend to recommend books until after I've read them, mm-hmm. but I, I'm in the introduction chapter one, can't put it down Ooh. and it's machine learning and human values. And it is fascinating. I mean, Ooh. riveting. And I wouldn't have thought, I actually heard about it on a podcast with Ezra Klein interviewing Mm -hmm. and they recently re-aired it. The book is, I mean, who could imagine it would be even better than the interview? And it it is, it's so good. The Alignment Problem by Brian Christensen, Machine Learning and Human Values. 
I would recommend it if I had read the whole thing, but I am pre-recommending it. I am from the future. I There's no way that it's going to like go downhill. So Unless far. it takes a sharp turn. It's not going to. It's not going to. I can tell from the table of contents. So, so All good. right. Yeah. Good. No, I think, and I think that th- this is an issue that I think affects way more people than just higher ed. I, AI is, is going to cause ethical issues, workplace issues. I think the more we can learn about it and anticipate some of these problems, the better we are. So thank you so much for your time. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad you, you got some time to do this. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for joining me on Geek 4. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Geek4Pod or me on Twitter at MWBoyce. If you listen on Apple Podcast, click the subscribe button and consider leaving a five-star review. Be sure to join us next time when we learn what someone else is a geek for.